Hello and welcome to Open Door Films. Before I talk about my guest today, I'd like to briefly mention the sponsors I've mentioned in previous episodes. First off, we're talking about Fountain. Now, for those unfamiliar with Fountain, it's pretty much a podcasting app that is the equivalent, or probably will be one day superior to Apple and Spotify, because unlike other podcasting apps, or maybe other ones that do provide for the value for value model, it also allows you to earn Bitcoin while you listen. That's right, in addition to being able to stream and boost sorry, tongue twist there, boost sats to your favorite creators. You're able to earn Bitcoin on your end just by listening to the very people you already admire on a creative level, which I think is fan-tucking-fastic when you think about it, because you should be rewarded for the time you're giving to, to a podcast, even if you're able to listen to that podcast while being physically productive. Now, the second sponsor of this podcast is Anchor. A lot of people listening to this podcast, as well as many other podcasts, are probably creatives in their own way and probably have the desire to create a podcast. Now, what's the best place to start that? That would have to be Anchor because, unlike other podcasting platforms, Anchor allows you to distribute your podcast across all the other platforms. That's right. Instead of just simply publishing an episode individually on every other platform, one by one, you just simply record yourself, publish the episode on Anchor, which I've left a link to down below along with the Fountain app, and your podcast will be distributed across all the platforms simultaneously. Whether that's Apple, Spotify, Fountain, Lisbon, CurioCaster, Podfreeze, all of them, the entire shebang, which is a word I'd never get tired of talking about. And one thing I'd love to talk about even more is my guest today, Daniel Solinger, who is a film and television producer working in Los Angeles. He's worked with innovative artists and with Arclight Pictures. He's been involved in many independent films, and I was very excited to talk about the two independent projects he mentioned to me, Boys Against Girls and his latest project, Clean, which stars Adrian Brody. And that was actually my favorite part of our discussion, because like many people out there, I'm sure, I think Adrian Brody is an underappreciated actor. I admire that he's worked with great directors like Roman Polanski and Wes Anderson, but I also admire that he's been the kind of actor that chooses his role selectively because he doesn't necessarily take it the for-the-money role. And I was stupid enough to think that he did that for Predators, but Daniel actually helped clarify that for me, and I was glad to because it only increased my appreciation for an actor like Adrian Brody. And in addition to that, it was just fun talking about independent cinema and many other topics because I was rather surprised that me and Daniel ended up talking about things like Bitcoin, decentralized film, and how the studio system might be gravitating towards, no, not the studio system, film culture might be gravitating towards a more decentralized approach, which I think is fantastic because he seemed to be very well educated on Bitcoin as well as other cryptocurrencies. Now, I'm not saying this to endorse other cryptocurrencies, everybody but at the same time, I don't want to come off as the type of maximalist who says that if you invest in other cryptocurrencies, you're a shitcoiner, even though I have called them shitcoins in the past. But at the same time, I still want to be respectful towards other people who invest in other currencies like Ethereum or Cardano or even Monero, which I, have more, which I actually like in addition to Bitcoin. Also, me and Daniel spoke about other things like geopolitics, gun culture, violence in cinema, independence the the value of independent cinema what it what it can do and just so many things that just made me excited and the, and the only the only thing that made me regret about this interview is that i wish it could have gone on longer because he's the kind of guy that obviously loves film understands its, its intellectual and narrative value 
and it's the kind that this podcast hopes to promote. Anyway, enough of my babbling. I hope you all check out the crypto buying links I've left down below, as well as check the sponsors I've, I've all linked to. I hope you look at Daniel's profile, check out the movies clean, the trailers to the movies clean, and Bo Girls Against Boys. I hope I didn't say Boys Against Girls. I must, I don't know, I'm not entirely sure. When it comes to making these intros, I tend to screw up. Anyway, enough of my babbling for real this time. Enjoy the show. Yeah, you're right, though, about the whole the journey thing, because if you just script it, it becomes rather boring. And I feel that filmmaking in many ways, I mean, I once listened to it on an episode of Roger Deakins's podcast uh, and how film itself has become this prepackaged, pre-mandated approach where a whole film has to be mapped out. And I was wondering before we really get into any serious stuff, do you feel it, that it's kind of that film culture has kind of devolved into that? Well, so, uh, you know, my name is Daniel Solinger. I'm an independent film producer. I've done almost 70 movies and um, every job is a custom fit. I, as an independent filmmaker, I have a sort of different experience. So Roger Deakins doing studio movies, there's a lot of suits involved, you know, a lot of accountants involved, a lot of, you know, like a lot of a lot of uh, middlemen, a lot of stuff in between. So I have a different experience where, for me, unfortunately, I feel like too often people rush uh, a project before the camera is before it's ready on independent film because, you know, they got their hands on their money, you know, or whatever, you know, they got their hands on the money and they're just rushing to rushing to the, uh, the starting line of production uh, while they can. And um, I do think, not necessarily over that things should be overthought, but but um, I think that you know the it's it's about layers. So the first layer that you put down is the script, and so often I feel like we run into production on independent films before the script layer is as good as it can be, and then you add the acting layer and the directing layer, and then there's all these other you know like in that process you know you're working out new layers. Uh, you know, with the actors about who these people are and why are they doing what they're doing, you know, and um, it, it's, it is a journey and it, it's, it, it shouldn't be pre thought out because it's so unique to the collaborators that you're dealing with, you know, but you also have to give it enough time for that, 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 that juicy stuff to gestate and to, to come to the front because you, if you just rush into production, you may not know or even understand what you're making uh, as well as if you think about it more ahead of time. Now, on the other side, I do, I agree. You know, if you have a bunch of suits saying like, we've looked at our metrics and, you know, we need this genre with this actor and we know we'll make X number of dollars and they, this character has to do the A, B, C, D and E, like then that, 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 that kills the creative process as well, you know? Yeah. And um, when you look back to guys like Stanley Kubrick and how he, on The Shining, the script would constantly change. And that's why I heard even when for people trying to download the script, it's very difficult to get an authentic version of that script because it was going through so many under, undergoing so many changes during filming. That would be considered unheard of today. Well, he was a, a filmmaker in and of himself. You know, he. Um... You know, he would take a year to shoot a movie and he would shoot a scene and then cut it and then watch it and then decide on how he can improve it and then go shoot it again and then cut it again 
and watch it again and then go shoot it again. And the way he was able to do that is that he had very low overhead. He worked with a very small crew. And um, usually, like, if he could do it on his family prop, on his own property, he would, you know. And the only thing he had to do is, like, really keep the actors around for a long time and just workshop it and workshop it and workshop it to the final version. So if that change, that meant changing writing or blocking or setting or whatever, you know, like he was constantly remaking the same movie while he was making it. Did he, which of his films did he shoot on any of his properties? If, I'm just curious, cause I, I, uh, I haven't seen all his films. I still haven't seen Barry Lyndon. Uh, you know, I, um, uh well i've seen most of his movies um i'm not i'm not saying i'm not sure i heard a story about um an actress you know who worked on one of his films and it was it, and i and the story went that the, it was basically even if it was pinewood studios you know he would treat it like his per, like he would just live there for a year you know like no. it would be even if it wasn't his personal property he would just live there for a year you know or you know basically you know like yeah just have it for that that amount of time and um yeah just just obsessive obsessive about detail and you know but we're working with the crew like the shining you know whatever they took over that hotel for they found a hotel that they could take over for a year or whatever you know and then they just lived there and you know would wake up every morning and go and shoot something and look at it and you know what i mean oh, that's yeah. what makes this stuff so 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 nuanced and detailed yeah, and I just bring him up because it seems like a like something very rare that you wouldn't see nowadays. I mean, there are definitely exceptions. I mean, the fact that someone like Christopher Nolan could walk away from Warner Brothers and then just move to Paramount so easily and get everything. He, well, I'm sure there were some compromises with Paramount, but he got mostly, from what's known, he got everything he wanted. Uh, several hundred million dollar budget and complete creative control over his project. Well, when you're bringing money in, you have that freedom. That's I know. <laughs> I know. And his movies, his movies bring people in. Yeah. Well, at the same time, exploring into the type of intellectual death you feel, I feel in many ways is missing from even mainstream films that operate on a smaller scale. I mean, I'm actually currently watching an, a very old movie by Bob Raffleson, Five Easy. I hope I say this. Five last. easy pieces. Yeah. I hope I say his name, last name right. Cause I've only, I don't know what other films I've seen so far. I just recognize the postman always rings twice, but I saw the original and uh, it just, it feels, I mean, when I'm watching five easy pieces, it feels like a very authentic film. It doesn't have to spell out what it's about. It just plays out so naturally that if you look closely, you get the, uh, you can just resonate, relate to and resonate with a lot of the themes in the story just from the first mm. 20 minutes. Right. Yeah. And, and I feel that intellectual death is missing from a lot of mainstream films and five easy pieces is not even, would you consider an independent film t today as opposed to 40 years ago or 50 years ago when it was made? Well, I mean, these labels are, are you know, um, I believe it was an independent film. That was a special time in cinema where anything was possible, that the directors were, uh, you know, uh, I think it was like a, a smaller studio that did five easy pieces. I'd have to do a little bit of research, but I think it, was, it wasn't one of the majors. You know, it was like a smaller, you know, uh, production arm that, that financed it, and then it got major distribution. Um, so it probably would be considered a, an indie film. 
indie film is something that just kind of came up as a label in the the 90s you know oh really in the 90s yeah i think i think because miramax had this model of buying films after they got made you know there was and you know there was sort of an explosion that happened with you know the 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 birth of sundance and you know a a, a buyer who was just trying to find movies that other people took the risk on the production costs you know and um it's it sort of created this world the independent film world that i i to the best of my knowledge that did not exist i mean you had you know you had other smaller production companies um like uh what's his name who started out all the directors um Lucas? Oh, his name's no 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 uh, he did just b movies just totally like they were called b movies then they weren't called independent films they were called b movies and you know so there would be some entrepreneur who knew how to push the right buttons to make a profit on a movie and then they would just finance it you know and and um you know they were called b movies oh god that's yeah that whoever that is i'm curious to know for but uh Unfortunately, I'm, I've, I've gotten older, so I, 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 my, my recall is not what it used to be. But, you know, it was the, you know, like Martin Scorsese made his first movie with this guy, Francis Ford Coppola, you know, all those directors that day, you know, um, you know, uh, all went through this, you know, James Cameron, all their first movies was, was, were, were what we'll call B movies with this, uh, with this one studio. Um, if I had Google in front of me, I'd, I'd have it in a second. Actually, believe it or not, I decided to try and do a search, and if it comes up, I'll, I'll mention it. But I'm I'm curious. I'm curious about my- look up look up who the producer of Boxcar Bertha was. Jonathan Demi's first film. Boxcar Bertha. All right. Oh God. Roger Corman. That's the guy, Roger Corman. So Roger Corman, you know, uh, you know, would make these cheap films, you know, and, um, you know, he knew how to make a profit on it. He wasn't a, a major studio. Um, and that was sort of the independent film of, film of its days. I wouldn't be surprised if Five Easy Pieces is on his, his uh, filmography. Um, he, he, he got all the best directors first movies. You know, he knew how to like find people, you know, Martin Scorsese's first movies with him. You know, he knew how to like find these people who were really talented, who hadn't made a movie yet. And and uh, and they were willing to do, you know, a really, really cheap movie, you know. Oh, I mean, when you look at all those films from the 70s, they look relatively cheap in scale, but just so mat- creative in terms of storytelling. I mean, when you I mean, whether it's film and they speak a lot to the degree in many themes that are going on right now. I think like we're living in an era that re- reflects re- resembles similar to something like taxi driver. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I was thinking too, how you were saying that, that, that there's not a lot of intellectual heft to the movies today, but I would argue that there's not a lot of intellectual heft to our society these days. You know, I, I, I don't think it's the, the, that it's that the filmmaking has changed. I think it's that society has changed where, you know, we glorify, you know, influencers for, you know, and, you know, like we're, we're not sitting, you know, we as a society aren't really contemplating the, the deeper questions and you know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I was, 
Uh, a few months ago, when I saw Dune, I saw a lot of themes in that film that resonate with what's been going on for decades, but I doubt many of the people would understand what those themes are pertaining to and how they're relevant, such as imperialism, the idea of, 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 of how politics really works and how it's just an open-ended game where one, one faction can just operate as a pawn for another faction and even just the how the acquirement of resources plays into that process. Yeah, yeah. But, I think they just. I think in a way, filmmaking has changed as a result of the society because I mean, and you could argue that technology has played a role in that. And as innovative as technology has become, it's also, I mean, let's be honest, the fact that that people still go to the movies itself and it's being that's being contemplated is alarming. But even if people go to the movies, there's a good chance they're still going to be on their phone tweeting about something. And I'm. I only use those social media accounts just to post links to this this podcast or my Substack. No, I never engage in conversation or some topic unless it's some groundbreaking news. I look at it and that's it because I think that there's something. I mean, it just the the I, I guess I'm getting as our attention spans have been severely depleted. Well, I look at it a little bit differently uh, because I'm a. Um... I'm a futurist. I'm really into like technology and the impacts of technology. And, you know, we are, we are making a, a, a shift as a species into something new, you know, basically. And, you know, this, this technology, we're like melding with this technology and all this stuff we're talking about is sort of a byproduct of us melding with this technology that we've created. It's evolutionary, you mean, essentially. Yeah, I do. I do mean I, that. And I agree with that. I mean, I just think that at the same time, you have to see both sides of the coin. Right. Oh, uh, for sure. For sure. Well, I mean, I think any technology has its promise and its peril, you know? So, you know, when they created fire, some people used it to burn down houses. Some used it to burn people to stake, you know, like, but, but we also learned how to cook and how to forge metal and, you know, all this other stuff. And, you know, the, the, the silicon chip is, is, is no different, you know? Yeah, and I don't want to border on the extreme of either side. It's like the climate debate. I mean, I don't want to be caught on the uh, agreeing with either side. You know, the borders on the extreme of either mm. state, whether it's non-existent or whether we all actually have twelve years before we all go to shit. Right. Because I just feel that that breeds a form of of uh, it just divides us to a much more detrimental degree and. Uh, but uh, moving forward, I wanted to ask you about your work, more about your work in independent film and some of the com the organizations you've worked with. Like sure. Artists, I noticed that that's a very well re uh, respected agency, and I just wanted to know more about your work in that line. Oh, sure. Which agency? Innovative Artists. Oh, Innovative Artists. Yeah, Innovative Artists is, uh, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're a, a good agency. Uh, you know, honestly, you know, I am looking for a new agent and, you know, um, but, uh, but um, the, uh, like I said, I would do independent film. I have a, a movie that came out in uh, January uh, called Clean, starting Adrian Brody. And I saw, that. Um, yeah, I saw the, I saw the preview on your, on your profile. It looks interesting. Yeah, it came out really good. You know, it came out, it came out, uh, it's, 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 it's the best thing I've ever done, actually. And, and working with, you know, Oscar winning level talent was, was such a joy. And he was, he co-wrote the script, he produced it with me, he did all the music, 
and he was like really invested in the project. And um, I learned so much uh, about the creative process, you know, and it sort of goes back to the layers that I was talking about. You know, it's sort of like if you're when you're making a movie, you know, you just have to take each step and make each step as great as it can, you know. So once you have a great script and once you've you know worked out things with your actors, you know, like you just keep diving into the details and seeing what details you can you can uh, focus on and, and improve on. And, you know, that goes all the way through editing that goes through, you know, when you're mixing the sound or, you know, uh, particularly with visual effects these days, you know, visual effects are are not that expensive and you can go into like any detail in any shot and adjust things. Oh, you know, can you take that telephone pole and then back out and, you know, oh, can you, uh, you know, we, and on that movie, we had a, a, a situation where, uh, you know, uh, we had to do a, a shirtless shot with Adrian and, mm. you know, any actor they're about to do a, you know, a, they see a shirtless shot on the schedule. Like they're going to like get obsessive about like working out, not eating. They never eat the day you do that shot at all, you know, and like two or three days before they're like, you know, trying to like sweat it out. Like it's a red, like, like, like they were a wrestler or, you know, like all this oh, stuff yeah. to, like, to get I, their body, body mass down as much as possible. So what happened though, is that his face got a little gaunt for other stuff that we were shooting, uh, the, you know, in and around that shot. And so we went with visual effects and we just, we just made his face a little bit fuller, you know? And so when you're going into the details, you know, the visual effects, you know, is another layer where you can just start. There was a whole other thing too in that movie where we have the central prop, which is a wrench. And it was written in, it was written in a way that was clearly like the central prop, but, but, the, but it had such like a symbolic meaning in the movie that we decided in post-production to, to, to work it into other shots and other things, you know? And so we were able to, you know, as we were doing these layers, you know, bring the wrench back more and have the wrench play, you know, have, have it play with even more sort of resonance and meaning and vibration, you know? Yeah. I mean, I've always felt that Adrian Brody was a very talented actor and I'm, in my opinion, highly underrated because I feel like, I mean, he's done a lot of great projects, even following his success with the pianist but I feel that he still hasn't gotten, I still feel like he hasn't been appreciated by, by audiences as much as he should be, because I felt his performance in the pianist was very moving and interesting, but I, I wanted to know more about the, the film that you worked with him on. Um, are you at liberty to talk more about the story or is it still? Sure. Oh, sure. Tell, tell yeah. It's, it's, it? it's, it's out now. You can, you can watch it. Um, you know, on most, you know, uh, uh, in the U S you know, it's on IFC plus, mm -hmm. um, but, or, or AMC plus, uh, but it, it should be moving to Hulu shortly. Um, it's been distributed around the world, uh, and should be available streaming around the world. But, uh, yeah, the story of it is, is he plays a recovering junkie who's trying to redeem his life as a garbage man. Um, and is and is in a, in a in a neighborhood that that needs help, and um, he gets caught up into a situation that uh, you know requires him to revert back to some of his animalistic behavior that he used to do when he was a junkie. You know, and um, he's you know working with him is awesome too because you know he does stuff he doesn't do stuff for like what will be popular. He does Good. stuff for what makes him happy you know and um he told me you know like when he moved to hollywood he got the cheapest car he could get 
you know, he lived with a roommate, you know, and he, he ate, you know, very cheaply. And he did that because he never wanted to take a job for money. And if you look at his entire filmography with one or two exceptions, it's clear that the money was not the, the, the deciding factor in any of his projects. You know, can that, that guess, can I take a guess at one of those money projects was Predator, go ahead. Predator. Oh, Predator. Oh, no. Predator. Predator. He's that is one of the films he is most proud of. Predator. Really? I haven't um, seen yeah. it, but it just looks like that type of film because I could never I mean not to. I hope this does. I don't want to put like a. I hope this doesn't come off as an insult towards him, but I can never see Adrian Brody as an action hero and not because he's not capable of it, but I feel even that archetype is kind of, I mean, it's very rare for, for an actor to become an action hero in a legitimate way where it's not over cheesy because as much as I admire someone like Liam Neeson, I think that that card has been overplayed to death since the success of Taken, which I, yeah. I first saw it. I thought it was highly overrated and kind of dismal. And uh, and they tried doing it with Sean Penn. I think John Wick is a is a successful franchise because it doesn't fall into many of the trends that these action films do do succumb to. But that's still very rare. And I just I, I was surprised. Can you tell? I mean, I know I hope this doesn't go off topic, but please tell me more about that. About well, I mean, you know, I think uh, you know uh, if Adrian could make action movies regularly he would totally do it. He, he, he loves like guns and stunts and, you know, doing, doing that kind of work. Um, he would never do it if there wasn't like really an interesting take on it. And, and, and our movie is that our movie, you know, it starts off very slow and you think you're like in this sort of indie, you know, dramatic indie world piece. And, and then it keeps ratcheting up and it becomes more and more action you know, uh, as, as the movie goes on and then, and then the end of it, the last, the last third of it is just full on, you know, gunfights and action, you know, and, um, he loved that, you know, and, and, and feels like the people, the public doesn't see him like that. So he wanted to make something that, that, that showed that side of him. And, uh, he loved his work on predators and, and, and would, would love to do more of that, you know, and, and that's precisely why he did clean. And um, that doesn't mean, you know, to me, like, you don't have to sacrifice one for the other. You know, we were talking about, like, you know, movies with intellectual heft, you know, like, I think about The Matrix, like, The Matrix works on, like, all these levels. If you just want to see an action movie, it's a great action movie, you know? If you, if you want to ponder some really deep philosophical stuff, it's also that, you know? And, and ideally, you can make an action film that, that can do that, you know? Um, that, that, you know, like, they don't have to be mutually exclusive, you know? No, absolutely. And I think in many ways, the Matrix is more relevant today than it was even 20 years ago, because the idea of the simulation, and I've actually had this discussion with several inter people I've interviewed in this podcast about the idea, because the Matrix has come up. And uh, the idea of the simulation, I mean, we have this very narrow, I think it's the theory of the simulation is very narrow, because we really, we always look to the brain in the jar theory. But I think it's much more complex because the idea of a simulation operates much like a narrative. And mm. when you look at, at the way the, the world, how a society constantly changes, it's also, it always operates on some narrative, but there's always someone constructing that narrative, determining the direction of society. And that can be for better or for worse. Yeah, I agree. Whether, I mean, I mean, are I, you, are you familiar with the concept of the singularity? Yes. Oh, okay. So, 
Yeah, I mean, I think they're very related. You know that 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 you know this the exponential growth of technology. You know, uh, is is creating basically multiple realities or you know multiverses and you know like i i think i think they kind of go hand in hand you know that that as computers get stronger faster cheaper smarter you know the more we sort of have these divergent reality paths that we can choose you know oh yeah i mean that's the beauty of technology but also there is the, the the potential horror of what it can implicate. But then again, it's so unpredictable that trying to assume what's going to happen in the next five or 10 years is very hard, is very difficult. I mean, I'm, I, I don't know how familiar you are with Bitcoin, but the idea oh, yeah. you could operate I'm... as this decentralized form of finance is something very liberating because, and we saw a prime example of that earlier this year with the Canadian truckers, how so many, whether you agree with it or not, the fact that their, their bank accounts were just frozen on a whim is right. terrifying. Yeah. I bought my first Bitcoin in 2013 right. and um, you know, I'm very deep in that space and, and, and it's going to, it's going to completely change the way we watch movies too. Oh yeah. Know? So, so I'm, I'm, I'm uh, a part of this project called decentralized.pictures where they are standing up, you know, a decentralized distribution platform and financing platform. And, you know, you can sell NFT, you know, you can make a movie as an NFT, sell shares to it. And, you know, basically all of your audience can have a financial stake in the movie, you know? Oh, that sounds, it, it, does it operate much like the, uh, the Hollywood stock exchange model? Oh, I used to love the Hollywood stock exchange. Yeah, it, I mean, think of the Hollywood stock exchange with with real money and with dividends. Like, like you you let's say let's say you love an Adrian, you're you're very interested in Adrian Brody, and you want to get involved in his next movie. Like, you can you know buy stock in that 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 movie, and then when the movie comes out and starts returning profits, because smart contracts, you know, it can all be code. And easy to do, and you know you don't need a studio and a, a ton of middlemen and accountants to deal with it. The, the the software can just automatically start paying you, you know, back. You know, let's say you get a fraction of a penny for every ticket sold. You know, because you bought in early into the movie, um, you would be able to, uh, you know, every time somebody clicked that button to watch the movie, you know, you would get sent that fraction of a penny to your your wallet. Hmm, fascinating. I mean. When it comes to Bitcoin, though, I do like the many technological opportunities it offers and the many, I mean, especially with the Lightning Network and even, uh, I don't know how familiar you are with the podcasting app Fountain, but that's basically like a, uh, a podcasting platform similar to Apple and Spotify. But you, in, in addition to being able to send Satoshis to creators, you can actually, if you're listening to a podcast you like, you can actually earn Bitcoin while listening to it, like a number yeah. of stats for every second or not every that second. Is, that is totally the future. Earn to play, you know, or play to earn, you know, play to watch, play to listen, you know, earn to, earn to watch, earn to listen. Like that, that is, that is the model that we are moving into. That is, that is absolutely, you know, it's, it's 10 years away probably until it's fully fleshed out, but that's, that's, that is totally the way we're going, you know, Are that you, you will. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, 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 no. I don't want to interrupt you because I'm just getting excited when we talk about these things. So just finish what you're saying. 
<laughs> no, just that that's that's the, the, the a decentralized future is what we're moving into, you know, where uh, you you will be earning and spending multiple, multiple layers of crypto every waking minute, depending on what you're doing. You know, whoever's listening to this, you know, uh, you know, will be paying for it and getting paid for listening. You know, like that's that's just uh, that's just the way uh, we're, we're moving. Do you worry with regards to Bitcoin, whether it becomes a politicized matter? Because I follow one of, I mean, I don't know what, if you, if I'm sure you listen to some Bitcoin podcasts, I don't know which ones, but the one I listen to is what Bitcoin did. Well, that's one of my favorites. And uh, Pete McCormick has been discussing with several people that he's concerned that Bitcoin will become a politicized matter. And unfortunately, many of the people that support Bitcoin on in the political space end up being either right wing or just Republican, and that can be used by by Democrats as a way of politicizing it as being anti Bitcoin without understanding what the technology does. I mean, I I agree with Pete McCormick's views that he doesn't believe Elizabeth Warren understands the technology that she just has some no. do mild research and she takes a shit on it. Yeah, so okay. Well, I mean, first of all, I think you got to understand that Bitcoin is the tip of the iceberg. Like Bitcoin is a radical invention that 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 was created, you know, in 2009 or whatever, you know. And um, but based on that invention, we now have this whole world of cryptocurrency, which is Bitcoin is very limited in, in what it can do. It's a store of value and it can be a medium of exchange, but but it's, it has a lot of limitations. And, and that's why Ethereum came out with smart contracts and basically made money programmable like money as a programming language, you know, and, and, and the, and the basis of that as, you know, there's now 20,000 cryptocurrencies and there'll be a big shakeout, but, but there's going to be, there's so much innovation and so many different ways this technology is being figured out to being used. Now, Bitcoin strength is, first of all, it was the first, it was the first mover. Second of all, um, it's decentralization is apolitical. You know, it's, it's, it's a piece of software, you know, that, that exists on an enormous network, you know, um, and, and quite honestly, it is a threat to governments, you know, um, it is a threat to fiat currency, you know, and if, right. if the U.S. government really understood the impact of it, uh, they would be doing everything they could to shut it down. That's why China's trying to shut it down. Uh, that's why Russia's trying to shut it down. Um, but it's also unstoppable. There's, there's, there's no, the, the amount of expense and computing power that would take to stop Bitcoin at this point, be uh, no, no, su- no, no single nation could take on, quite frankly, honestly. Well, and, um, there are two ways, but they're both suicidal. I mean, shut down the internet, which would destroy many infrastructures, especially the ones that governments rely on, or nuke every cunt, nuke every cunt, every nation in existence, and there'll probably still be one server operating. Uh, yes, and you're never going to get every country in the world to get together and turn off the internet. You're, 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 I know, I know. I said that's why it's, I regard it's, it's, them as suicide. <laughs> and, and yes, exactly. You're right. Like a complete species suicide is the only way you go stop Bitcoin. And if the species stops to exist, there will be no need for Bitcoin. Uh, but otherwise, you, you kind of can't stop it. Um, now, uh, I agree. Like Elizabeth Warren has a lot of education that she needs to have. Um, but the, but but people on the the libertarians do as well, you know. But what the libertarians like is just but is just that fact that it's it's 
uh, decentralized, unstoppable. You, you can't, you know, you can't control it. You know, um, they're, they're, they will try and they will have some limited short-term successes at, at controlling it. I'm talking about governments, but, but in the long run, it's, 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 it's gotten too big to be stoppable. It is unstoppable. It is, it is, is our present. It is our future. And there's, oh, it is going to be laced. It's going to be laced into every, if you think the internet is big, blockchain is going to be 10 times bigger. It'll be laced into every single little aspect of our lives. Well, the fact that the, even at 20,000, that's considered an all-time low when 4,000, two and a half years ago, was considered an all-time low is impressive. But you said that you believe that this technology will change film culture, but how do you feel about it on a narrative level? I mean, you know what I've noticed? Like, I mean, did you ever read the Bitcoin standard? I don't know. what I read the Bitcoin white paper. Is, oh, is the Bitcoin no. standard a book? Yeah, by Seyfedina Moose, who talks about, well, the, the great thing, that is like considered like the Bible of Bitcoin, and yet it barely talks about Bitcoin. It talks about other forms of money that operated more efficiently than fiat currencies. And what I, and he obviously mentions gold and the why it was so useful at the time where we used it as a standard of, of exchange. But what I found fascinating, because I watched the John Wick movies, and what I love about those movies is they execute the rules of their narrative so so confidently without feeling they need to explain everything to anybody. Right. And one thing I noticed is the use of the gold coins. You could say that's like a very primitive way of exchanging, like the way people would exchange uh, Satoshis with one another, because these gold coins... They're just simply referred to as gold coins, but they just operate in this way where they can do almost anything for the for the people in that underground criminal society. Like they right. are, and, and the fact that they're made of gold, which was the strong is the strongest element in terms of the metals used for for uh, metals that have some level of value, is just interesting, and it feels like they just got ahead of the game and. I'm just curious what you think that Bitcoin or cryptocurrency will play in, in film narrative. Well, it's going to, like, a, you know, uh, it's going to be a enormous force in our life and society. And, and, and it will be a force in the, in, in the movies. What's more interesting to me is, you know, uh, what will happen when, um, you know, this decentralized model, you know, filmmakers really start using it and exploring it and iterating it, because I think it will change the way stories will be told. Like, first of all, in theory, um, you know, they, we could cut out the studios entirely and distributors and networks and everything, you know, like, uh, and filmmakers could decide to make whatever movie they wanted you know, uh, do it on a decentralized platform, you know, crowd, crowdfund it, make the movie, and then everybody who's, who crowdfunded will, would profit off of it. And I think that will give filmmakers a lot of freedom to explore so many things that they wouldn't have otherwise. I also think that, you know, decentralized technology is going to change the way we understand information in the world, uh, more as like these, these, these little packets and these little things if you look at like tiktok you know like people don't sit down and watch a movie as much anymore as they sit there and scroll through little nugget sized pieces of information on their their tiktok or or you know instagram reels or whatever and um i think i think that that 
I wouldn't be surprised if storytelling became a way that not only did it work, you know, as a whole, you know, you look at look at the popularity of like ep- episodic television, which, mm-hmm. you know, with the birth of streaming, you know, you can binge watch something, um, you know, and that became popular. So, you know, the way we tell stories as a result of streaming is different. Everybody's, you know, if they had a movie, they, they're now they're thinking about how to do it as an eight episode you know, limited series or, you know, and then if that does well, then go to another version, another chapter of that story. So I think that uh, the decentralized, everybody becoming more decentralized using decentralized technology, that filmmakers will make movies that work as a whole, as a, as a two hour experience, but also all the component parts will work as standalone things. You know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if that happened that you know, we get so I, I see it now on my TikTok with uh, HBO. HBO is releasing all these great little one minute clips from, you know, The Wire and from Succession and from all their things. And they they're great standalone pieces. Um, and you can sit there and watch the entire, you know, four seasons of The Wire or you could just watch one episode of The Wire or you can watch the 60 second clip. You know, and I think I think storytelling will move into, you know, that that sort of multi-dimensional um storytelling you know oh absolutely i mean hell just take i mean i mentioned to you i have a sub stack where i write film reviews i wish that was more successful but i do appreciate the decentralized aspect of it because I, I don't know how familiar you are of Substack, but what gravitated me towards is a lot, a lot of journalists i admire moved to Substack because of their own frustration with the way legacy media and its centralized model operates. Uh, right. I mean, I don't, I mean, are there any journalists that you follow that in particular that you admire? Because I think some of them probably might've moved to Substack as well. And Well, I have, Substack has been becoming on my radar. I do see more and more people moving to it, you know, and, and it's interesting. You were talking about like, you know, maybe, you know, one political party or another, you know, public, you know, um, uh, using Bitcoin you know, as a politic- political division. Yeah, Bit- Bitcoin. But, you know, like the reality is, is that, you know, what's happened is, you know, media has been consolidated to, you know, uh, five players or whatever, you know, and so they can control the narrative. And that has a lot more political um, harm uh, than, than, you know, than anything else. And, and I think that, that, the the strength of decentralized uh media and currency and and um is that is that it is a lot harder to consolidate that power into one decision maker who's feeding you a narrative you know and um absolutely so i think i think yeah i think things like substack and you know like i said decentralized dot pictures and you know all these things will sort of take give the power to the creators to the individuals and and take and and i think it'll be harder and hopefully uh, it will be harder and harder to consolidate power and dictate the content and that that we consume um that being said i remember i'm old enough to remember when the World Wide web was birthed and that was the hope of the World Wide web and yet that became very consolidated you know um, but but uh, that is the, that is sort of the promise of, of decentralized technology is that, uh, you know, you there'll be a lot more freedom for the creators and a lot less uh, power given to the politicians, quite frankly, because, you know, or if it, and I say politicians, not the people who sit in government, but the people who, you know, 
control the people who sit in government, you know, and also control yeah. the media, you know? Oh, absolutely. And I mean, I think in many ways, it'll also eliminate our capacity to succumb to biases, because let's be honest, I don't like, I didn't, I never liked Trump, but I never bought into the narrative that he was some fascist, because that just felt over-exaggerated without, well, because I think that even most people don't understand what real fascism is. Mm. And that is just a word that can, it's like accusing someone of being, yeah, what's the most, co- what's the most common one, I guess, accusing someone of being a Nazi without eating, right? just because, uh, I mean, I don't, I don't even know, it's just. No, it's true. I think that, I mean, that word gets thrown around a lot. And basically a Nazi is somebody who doesn't believe the same stuff you do. And I, I've, I used to be very political. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm a left-wing, you know, um, person and I used to go to a lot of protests and get, you know, stay on top of everything that was happening in politics. And, and, and Trump has made me stand back because I realized both sides and, you know, in America, we have a two-party political system and both sides profit from demonizing the other, you know? And That's so, so the, the, the hyperbole that I think you're, you're sort of, referring to you know i think is is a problem on on both sides and as a result like i have in a lot of ways disengaged i'll still vote i think voting's important but i've dis i've disengaged from the you know um political discourse because it's really just a, a food fight you know it's really just you know really demonizing the other side and um it's it's not helpful you know, it's not helpful for me, you know, to think that somebody like Trump is evil, you know, and it's not healthy to be called, you know, a libtard, you know, so you they, know, still use that. they still use that term. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, no, it just feels like an, a word that's a lot that's out of fashion now, because I, I just no, I just I guess on a humorous note that that insult just feels like like an out of fashion insult. Because, I mean, nobody said, I mean, I don't know what other words are out of fashion. I guess neato is a word that's out of fashion now. But I totally agree with what you're saying, because I still hold some views that may border on being left. But I mean, I never participated in protests, but I've become somewhat probably more pessimistic because even voting for me has become like, I mean, do we really want to operate on this lesser of two evils model anymore? I mean, that itself, I mean. I'm not going to, but the the alternative is complete disengagement. And that's, that's not, I don't think that's good either. You know, that definitely hands the power over to, you know, those, those decision makers I was talking about who, you know, control the media and the politics. Um, So I I think I personally feel like disengagement isn't the answer either, but this actually brings me back to another movie I made, which is called immortality or bust. And um, it's, uh, it's about this gentleman, Zoltan Isvan, who, uh, started a new political party called the transhumanist party, you know, and went out there and, you know, basically ran for, ran for president the same cycle Trump ran the first time. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, we need more options, you know, we need, you know, more choices. And, and I think that's possible, you know, but, but, but we can't play into, you know, the the what's the, the narrative that's being manufactured for us we have to all create our own narratives you know i don't think you even have to read noam chomsky's manufacturing consent to get that to understand that concept because that's pretty much how the game is played if other countries have multiple political parties you can you obviously see it can be done i mean i still envy your optimism because i just feel like we're still dancing around this game where People, I mean, here in the U.S., everybody's just so divided on 
on issues that should not be debatable or could be resolved a lot much more easily. But, well, uh, and and get ready. It, it, I I think there, you know, in a way, software would be such a much better governing uh, force than humans, right? So, I you know, uh, I don't know when, but eventually, you know, we won't really have human representatives. You know, we'll all agree on what's, uh, you know, what we believe in, what's important, how to execute it. And it'll be written into a piece of software that will be executed, you know, and artificial artificial intelligence. Yeah. I mean, you know, think about an artificial intelligence president, you know, so, you know, if, if you, if, if you have a human president and, you know, they wake up in a bad mood, you know, or they're hungry, let's say just even just hungry, you know, like, you know, they're, they're hungry and they make a decision that affects the lives of millions of people, you know, because they're hungry, like adversely, you know, like that, you know, like that's not cool. That's not a good thing, you know, but yeah. if you got a piece of software that never gets hungry, that, ne- that, 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 that's making decisions and implement and implementing execution, that execution will be consistent. That's the other thing too, is that the, you know, in the political world, like execution isn't consistent. You know, if you, if you're well-connected, you can bend the laws in whatever, whatever way suits you, you know, and that shouldn't really uh, in an ideal world be the case, but if it was a piece of software, it's immutable, you know, it's, it's non-fungible, you know, and, um, you know, you could, uh, you know, have all the laws, you know, as pieces of software that just get executed as opposed to all the, you know, of uh, uh, character defects that, that human bring beings bring into the, uh, into the process, you know? Well, from a technological standpoint, looking at the idea of an AI go- having such governing power, I mean, I can see the efficiency and I still have some skepticism because I mean, but then again, that's probably biases towards all the things we've seen of AI or we've made movies about, but uh, I certainly agree with the idea. I mean, the idea of a person acting on pure emotions, that's still very risky. I mean, much of, I mean, but then again, there's also the bias that when you accuse government of being totally corrupt, people don't understand. It's not just corruption. It's just simply incompetence because the wrong people are in office or they're just managed by the wrong people. It's like a mixture of things. And uh, I once actually listened to this podcast, The Making Sense by Sam Harris. And I don't know what the name of the general, the retired U.S. general he had. You still there? I'm here. Okay, I thought because I heard like a weird button beep on my end. But he interviewed this general who wrote a book called The Button, which is about nuclear weapons. And one part that they discussed was how the U.S. military was the one that managed the nuclear codes. Now it's just the, now that's been shifted over to the president. And I don't think either situ- scenario is good because at the end of the right. day, you just don't know what, what, what can happen. I mean, if a, one person contr- managing the nuclear codes, you don't know what kind of mood they'll be in or even what kind of mood they'll reach once they're told of an imminent threat and they have to act quickly. Right. Yeah, in the military industrial complex, that itself is something that's all equal already alarming. I mean, we all you sure. have is watch Dwight Eisenhower's speech. And you don't have to be a fan of Eisenhower. No, I you know, absolutely. And and unfortunately in America, like we are the biggest part of the problem. You know, we've just funneled so much money into it that, you know, um, you know, it's it's sort of like, you know, once you build a gun, you know. Once you've created a gun, like existentially, 
it has to shoot to be alive. You know, like, you know what I mean? Like, like, you know, so, you know, just, just putting so much resources into it, there's no other, you know, it has no other choice, but to perpetuate itself, you know, the, the, the whole complex, you know? So, um, yeah. And that's, that's really, you know, that's us. That's us Yankees. Without going to, without, I hope I'm not like, um, uh, I guess invading any private thoughts on this, but what are your personal thoughts on the gun debate going on? I mean, mine is just that, I mean, if somebody wants to own a gun to protect their family, I understand. But for even someone like me who doesn't own one, I do feel that it does, that there are some levels where it can go overboard in purchasing high caliber weapons. I'm just curious your thoughts on this because it's become yeah. notable over time. My, you know, uh, I would say that, um, it's sad, you know, it's sad to see all the killings. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I deal a lot with people outside the U S and I think we just look like a savage bunch of idiots <laughs> to the rest of the world. Um, I think the, the, the constitution has been perverted to, to, for political purposes so that people misunderstand what the, the, the framers of the constitution meant about a well-regulated militia and they use it as a, as a political, um, dopamine um injector into their into their uh political system you know they'll go take away your guns ah go buy a bunch of guns you know and you can't you know but 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 it's it's out of hand you know i you know i have to say that you know um you know that at the end of the world war ii you know that we needed liberalism we needed we needed um you know, the, all the new ideas and the fresh ideas that liberalism brought and, and the pendulum started swinging, you know, and then by, by the, through the sixties and then the seventies, you know, we got a lot of corrupted, toxic, you know, uh, uh, ben, you know, like effects from over, over liberalization. But then what happened is that, you know, in the seventies, the, the pendulum had reached its apex and it started swinging the other direction because we needed conservatism, you know, and that, and that, that pendulum has been swinging since the 1970s. And I think we've reached our apex, you know, uh, with the conservatism swing and, you know, there's going to be a necessity, you know, for it, for it to start going in the other direction, you know, and I think, I think the, the gun debate and the, and the, the mass shootings is, is all a byproduct of, you know, our, our society, you know, needing to, you know, spend 50 years, you know, uh, going, uh, in a, in an ever more conservative direction, but it's, it's not sustainable, you know, it's not, and it's going to have to swing back the other way. I'm curious if you believe that film has played somewhat of a role in this, given that when it comes to movies, I mean, I'm not against the idea of violence in films, but there has been a sensationalism that is kind of hypocritical and even, just even pornographic to a degree where it even affects the way films are not only rated but how they're looked at when they're being rated because i know that the rating system was radically different where it was just has it had to be just two ratings pg and r and now yet a sex scene in a film will drastically will be much more detrimental as to how it's rated as opposed to something much more violent i mean yeah nobody oh, absolutely Nobody has a problem with Keanu Reeves killing several guys with pencils. And as much as I enjoy seeing those really the, the fight, those types of fights that have a great rhythm to it. The fact that Maria Bello's pubic hair in a movie like The Cooler will risk the film getting NC-17. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree 100 percent. And even beyond that, you know, it's hard to watch Top Gun 
and not want to go shoot something, you know, like, or get on an air, you know, get on a, a you know, a, a weapon of war, you know, you know, like, you know, I think there's been a lot of, you know, it, it's, again, I think it's the, the movies reflect the society and also influence the society. And I think, you know, the last 50 years of movies, you know, has, has gone towards the glorification of violence, militarism, you know, um, uh, just watching you know, the Olympus has fallen movies. I, saw that in 2013 i i mean i was disgusted by it but also just amazed that so many people were enjoying it when how how just how abhorrently terrible it was i mean the fact that they made a joke out of a scene of gerard butler ripping a dude's throat open while having his diehard esque conversation with the villain yeah and that's another thing that turned massively turned me off about the film it was just a straight out copycat of diehard yeah well that's you know we were talking about roger corman i mean that's that's out of uh there's another sort of successor to the roger corman uh school and that's a guy named avi lerner and so he does he does those movies he does uh the expendable series you know and he self-finances it and self-distributes it and you know like that's you know um yeah you know it's again it's just so you know and i'm in the same boat as you it's sort of like you know, I don't like the glorification of violence, but, you know, I like watching a good action movie, you know, and and both can coexist, you know, although like I've, I've really held off seeing Top Gun 2. Like, I know I will love it. I know it's probably virtuoso filmmaking, you know, but I just, you know, like, but I it, it doesn't sit well with the part of me who's an anti-war activist, you know, and and uh, and and I can and I can be both things because we are complex people. Like I can like Top Gun and I can be an anti-war activist. Yeah, and I just have can. to understand I, I just have to understand that, you know, that dichotomy, you know? You have to find the middle ground and be self-reflective about it. I mean, I that's different for me because I hope I'm not shitting on your youth, but I couldn't watch the first Top Gun because it was kind of boring. I know that I, I'm sure I'm pitting, pissing off a lot of fans of the film, but it <laughs> kind of bored me to death. Well, I mean, you know, if you weren't if you weren't alive in that era, you know, and, and a film watcher at that era, you know, like I could see how it'd be boring. I mean, filmmaking technique has changed so much that it probably would be very boring to somebody who was born, you know, 20, 30 years ago, you know. But but when I was you know, I, that probably came out when I was like a teenager or in my early 20s. And it was just like, wow. You know, what is it is... about that film that resonated so much? Because, I mean, the. the so the... that was directed by Tony Scott, who's a, who's got who was a commercial director. He directed TV commercials and he brought a style, a visual style uh, in the use of like music and, and cinematography that was at a level that had not been reached before that movie, you know? And then the fact that they were able to get the co-op, you know, that was produced by Jerry Bruckheimer. Um, and, the, and the fact that he was able to get, you know, the full cooperation of the, the military to show you these places that you don't see in other movies, like the deck of an aircraft carrier and, you know, what it's like. And, you know, when you're going through training, flight school, you know, uh, you know, for the Air Force, you know, it's like, so it was this level of access into the, the military. It was the, the visual style that Tony Scott brought to it. And of course, you know, it all starts with a good script. I forget who the screenwriter was, but, you know, like they, they created a, you know, a compelling story and compelling characters, you know, now, is it deep? No, you know, but is it fun to watch for me? Yes. You know, and I suspect that the sequel is, is, is the, 
current day equivalent of, you know, interesting, you know, stylistically interesting access, you know, like Tom Cruise is actually flying those F-16s and that to be in the cockpit with him and, and the authenticity that he's really flying it, you know, must be exciting, you know? I just actually decided to check the names of the writers involved. And it was a guy named Jim Cash and Jack Epps Jr. Uh, just figured you'd want to know. I mean, I haven't seen, I haven't seen, I, I didn't finish the first Top Gun and <laughs> I'm sure I, I would enjoy, I mean, I've heard the second one has been highly critically successful. I don't, I don't deny the commitment a guy like Tom Cruise gives in terms of action scenes, because it seems almost like he, like he throws himself into it so much that almost you'd think he's either crazy or has some type of death wish. You still Maybe. there? I th- no, I'm just, I'm just sort of pondering Tom Cruise because, you know, um, the stunts he does are he's, insane. He, he's just, he, I, you know, like I find that the, the, you know, like working with Adrian Brody or there's other, you know, sort of high level creative people I've worked with, you know, it's, and then what separates them and this, what separates Tom Cruise is just the level of commitment. You know, I worked with Will Smith, same thing. You know, it's just like that level of commitment to go to any length to make something as good as it possibly can be, you know, and, and for Tom Cruise, that's like doing the stunts, flying the planes and the helicopters. That's, you know, but he also produces, you know, he's a producer on that movie. He's, he's a great producer, you know, and, and, you know, making sure the script is as good as it can possibly be making sure that they pick the best possible director, you know, that, that his co-stars are, you know, signing up for something that they're going to give, you know, 200% to, you know, and even um, the financial aspect of it. I mean, the fact that, um, that, I mean, I, I, I don't know every detail of it. I actually learned about it in interviews that he, that he didn't subscribe to the model where the film has to rely on the success of international markets. Like, cause like, I remember, I don't know if you remember the whole John Cena apologizing to China because he misinterpreted Taiwan, Taiwan. Mm, right. I heard Tom Cruise didn't go, go in that same route. And I found that rather interesting, but also admirable in a sense, because I know that the latest Spider-Man film in China, they wanted to remove the Statue of Liberty, which didn't make any sense. Huh. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, it's, 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 it's about market share, you know, and there's, there's a lot of people who compromise for market share and there's people that don't, you know, um, Tom Cruise doesn't, you know, Chris Nolan doesn't, you know, I think if you, if you know who you are and what you're making, you know, and you have the, the clout, like you, you, you don't have to make compromises. I think if you're insecure, you know, as a person, you know, as soon as there's an obstacle, you're going to bend to whatever that obstacle is and, you know, capitulate or apologize or what have you, you know? No, my, my view is, I mean, I wouldn't say it's not, it's suicidal so much as I think there's a bit of fatalism you need to embrace. Like, you know, I just go into it, like not hoping or expecting it's going to guarantee to fail, but expect that, you know what, if there's a chance it fails, at least make sure it fails on your terms. Yeah, I think that in an ideal world, you're you're absolutely right. You know, um, the, uh, the 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 challenge in filmmaking is is that you're not a novelist. You know, you're not sitting down, you know, and uh, with a blank piece of paper, you know, and 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 completely individually crafting your story. You know, David Fincher says that making a movie is like painting a watercolor with 
200 people holding the brush two miles away and you have binoculars and a walkie talkie, you know, and that's true. Like, you know, so many people's hands are on the creative process that, that it's, you, you, it's impossible to have like singular vision, you know, now the, the clearer you, the vision you have as a creator and let's say a director, you know, the, and, and in, in Tom Cruise's case, I would say producer star, you know, uh, the clearer the vision that you have, the, the, and the better you are at communicating that to the 200 people holding the brush, the more consistent that vision will be. But at the end of the day, you know, it's a collaborative medium that, 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 that everybody's thoughts and feelings, everybody's thoughts and feelings who's involved in the project sort of get thrown into the mix, you know? Oh, I absolutely agree with that because I mean, are there any particular screenwriters that you've worked with that, that just have just resonated with you or just, I don't know, you just enjoyed the collaboration with the most? Yeah. And, and, and because of the era that I became a filmmaker. So like I said, I do independent film and, you know, I, I got into the business in the nineties when independent film was, you know, uh, starting out and and it really gave uh it gave the rise to the, like the writer director so you know usually when i when i talk about writers that 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 really i think are, are very strong um they're also the directors so um you know the guy the guy who wrote and directed uh clean uh, paul solette uh very clear very strong vision unique voice you know um i did a movie called girls against boys with a writer director named austin chick and and austin is the same you know has a very unique voice you know knows exactly you know what he wants and how and and uh you know is able to communicate that so i would say those two those two writers uh you know um were very strong um i also worked with this guy uh michael martin who did um Ah, I did that a movie. Sounds with, familiar. I did a, I did a movie with him called Ten Cent Pistol, and just like a a really strong writer, just like and it's so nice when you read like strong writing, you know, and it's you know, and and you know it like in the first few pages, you you know right away, you know, I'd say like ninety nine percent of scripts are not well written, you know, or like a high percent. I won't say ninety nine, but at least you know, like ninety percent of the scripts I get are not necessarily well written um oh and those, my, those really good ones come it just gets to you my experience with inglorious bastards i haven't seen yeah. them in 10 years but not because i don't i think i personally think it's tarantino's best but i guess there's something about me that doesn't want to ruin the the, the sensation i felt when i first saw it and those first 20 minutes i mean that is some of the best writing you'll see in an introductory scene ever Absolutely. Absolutely. Hey, Andy, I have my daughter calling me um, and I'm uh, about to start shooting on this movie that I'm working on now. Um, I'm wondering uh, if we can sum, sum it up. Oh, don't worry. It's on your time. I understand. And I Listen, Daniel, thank you for the time you've given me. And before you, you go, I, I wanted to just ask you two questions. Like, in addition to the profiles and the links you have, where else do you think people could best find out and learn more about you? I mean, I'm sure you're, you're I mean, I know you're famous already, but I just wanted to know <laughs> if there's any other sources you'd like to provide just to help people better know about you and the organizations you've been a part of. Well, if, uh, if, if uh, you're interested in film producing or the filmmaking at all, I would say follow me on TikTok. I'm producer Daniel on TikTok. Um, I have a website, www.danielsollinger.com. 
Um, and, um, yeah, those are probably the, the two places to get more information. And of course, if you IMDB me, you'll see my filmography and you can sort of pick and choose what, what, what projects, uh, you'd be interested in, in, in watching. Like I said, clean just came out in January. I highly recommend girls against boys, uh, which I just talked about. Um, I highly recommend, uh, Immortality or Bus, which is the documentary I produced and directed about uh, the transhumanist party and Zoltan Isfan running for president. And um, yeah, um, that's that's where I would point people. Okay, I'll make sure to include those links in the description. And I also, I guess, this may be more of a personal one for me, but I wanted to know if I could ever send you any of my material because I mentioned I'm also a writer myself. And if yeah, and I absolutely write, and I absolutely. Don't, I mean, I don't want to get my hopes up, but I guess I just, if you ever want to see any of my material, I could send it to you and you just share it with anybody you think would be interested. Sure. You have my email, send it and um, I'll look at it and I'll give you my, I'll give you some, a little bit of feedback. Oh, thank you very much, Daniel. I really appreciate it. And again, thank you for your time. I wish you the best of luck in your, in your work. I hope you keep, you keep doing what you do because I do see a lot of value in independent cinema. So Good. Well, I, this has been a great conversation for me. This has been very, uh, very fascinating. I've really enjoyed it. No, I was surprised we ended up talking about Bitcoin and gun policy. That <laughs> I never expected. But nah. anyway, thanks again. Uh, good luck with the shoot and give your daughter my best. All right. Thank you so much. You take care. You as well.